You're listening to Are We Done Yet? with host Rob Anthony. I think a lot of this AI is going to get baked right into the tools that we're already using and we're not even really going to see it there. So I think that's going to be something that's going to happen pretty quick. It's going to go invisible and under the surface and we're seeing it already. That was the voice of Chris Krug, CEO of Future Proof Creatives and renowned photographer with us today to do a bit of a deep dive into deep fakes, AI in general, its risk versus rewards, if there are any. Uh, Chris, super cool to have you here. Thanks for coming by. Hey, thanks a lot, man. This studio is really awesome. I'm very impressed. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a bit of a work in progress. It's also been uh, a great source of procrastination. You're going to have to tell me the story of all these photos here. It seems like you chose them pretty intentionally. I did. I tried to tell a story. Um, but it's, So ironically, I, I'm choosing to tell a story via visual medium, like photographs. Yeah. Um, we're doing that a little differently these days with AI. Right. So that's for theory, sure. That's for sure. At some point in the future, I could simply tell my living room to display a series of photos depicting this. And is that a little bit too far fetched? No, talking about I mean, if that's what you want, I'm sure you could do it uh, already today. You know, there exists like screens that you can put on walls that look like picture frames and stuff. And yeah. I'm sure that they uh, we could talk to those things over Bluetooth. And you know, I'm sure we could conjure up images using Mid Journey or Dolly and stick them up as art in your house. Yeah. How long have you been working with programs like Dolly and MidJourney? They've been around for a while. They've been around for a while, but the explosion that we've seen uh, happened about a year ago with the release of ChatGPT4. That was really the big yeah. the big deal. And at the time, it wasn't doing images and stuff, but MidJourney got a lot better with the last release as well. And so someone showed it to me last December, and I started messing with them. I'm a photographer, as you know. And so I started using it to generate some images. And I was trying to create, you know, hyper-realistic type things. And um, I was pretty impressed with what it could do. But, it, you know, it would mess up faces quite a bit and, you know, disfigured hands and stuff. Some of the intricacies of the human body, it couldn't quite figure out still right. yet, you know. And so I told my friend, oh, if it can work out these things and a few other things, I could really see, you know, this being quite useful in 10 years, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And like a month later, I called him back as... Things just keep rolling out all the time. New features, it's getting better really quickly and stuff. So, you know, within a month, it was, you know, where I thought it could be maybe five years from now or 10 years from now. And I was like, okay, we really- and it was already there. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. So I, yeah, I remember when I first heard about AI and we all heard the Tom Cruise video. This is a clip provided by the same creator of that original clip, Tom Graham, um, at the TED Talk in Vancouver with a bit of a Canadian twist. I'm north of the border, eh? <laughs> At the TED conference, it's not short for Theodore, but nobody calls me Thomas, so it's cool. It's Tom and Ted. Yes, I... Canada. <laughs> Seriously, though, everybody here, very nice, very polite, especially the whales. Uh, so this, this is actually a follow-up. The original one, I think that was 2015, right? And it went a little something like this. Yeah, I'll be right there, Steve. Hey, what's up, TikTok? Look, I do a lot of my own stunts, but I also do a lot of industrial cleanup, okay? It's important. So uh, obviously you keep your hands clean, but you need that exfoliating product to really cut through the grime, okay? Just another tip for you talkers, or the tip, to <clears throat> the TikTok tips. I, I'm getting too old for that, I don't, <laughs> internet. The laugh, the way, he, incredible. the way he nails that yeah, laugh. But, but the thing is with the originals, it was still a person speaking versus this is now what you showed me. It's all the text down to the laugh. Yeah. It just blows me away at Elon Musk. I just dropped like a 150 milligram edible and uh, 
I'm feeling fucking zooted. Honestly, I'm I'm feeling on the neck on the top floor right now. I'm about to design like 30 new fucking space cars and get us to Mars. So you mentioned that you can tell that that's that that, that, that I, one's fake. I can tell. Well, I can tell how that one's made. Okay. That that looks like a webcam video of somebody who's not him with just his face mapped onto. Okay. That. Whereas the other one, um, the Tom Cruise one, it's harder to tell how they made that one. I think the process was probably a lot more intricate because you can see in that one, he's moving his hands and the motions in his hand motions right. are a lot like him. With the low hanging fruit stuff, like the stuff I showed you how to do in Hey Jen, um, you know, you're supposed to limit your hand motions. You can't walk forward and backward if you move around too much. Um, like you notice if you watch my videos closely, now that you know they're deep fakes, when I wiggle, my beard starts to talk. Not just oh, my lips, but my, you can see my beard. And it's because right. it's trying to map it up, but it kind of misses ever so slightly. Right, right. So yeah, that's one of the ways that you can kind of tell the techniques behind how the deep fakes are made. But the the fancy expensive ones, there's just no way you'll ever right. know. I've been seeing a lot of memes floating around the internet the last couple of days that's like Dolly a year ago, Dolly today. And it's, they'll use the same prompt. And it's, it's, right. it's remarkable. It looks like, you know, grotesque child's play uh yeah. compared to like you know fashion type imagery now and stuff so it's incredible how how far it's come in such a short period yeah. of time so in that it's funny because you 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 mentioned uh the fashion in industry and that's one of the first industries to start pushing back a little bit against the idea of ai yeah because we've seen ad campaigns that are using uh virtually generated models and now the acting industry is talking about actor strike that's fine. We are going to. So we're already in this space where it's moving so quickly that that age old question of what about my job uh, is creeping up. Yeah. For you as a photographer, that you've done that for the most of your career, did you not feel a sense of, hang on a second, my job's at stake or there's a challenge to, to my craft? Um, I think that's a great question because I think AI is definitely in the face of all creative professionals right now. You know, it's like I'm one by one. We're watching creative industries get eaten up by AI, whether it be writing or image making design. You know, generative AI can do a lot of these things at a very, very high level. Um, I've lived through a bunch of technological revolutions. You know, I cut my teeth building websites. And then I was very early into kind of web 2.0 and blogging and, you know, kind of that, that whole um, era of the internet and stuff. And so uh, I didn't personally react like, oh my God, what about my career? I, my attitude is always kind of like, how can I use these emerging tools inside my studio? And so I was very much from the outset trying to tinker um, with it and learn about it and, um, you know, I use it all the time as a designer and a photographer, but I don't necessarily use it to make designs or photos all the time. You know, I can use right. chat GPT to do conceptualizing and brainstorming and stuff, or I can use another uh, tool like ideogram to do like logo work or patterns that I overlay on top of photos and stuff. So um, I find it super useful, not always in, in what is my actual product as a photographer, right. but in my process inside the studio. So for you, it's, it's doing what I think AI or, or uh, programming in general was meant to do, which was re reduce the mundane bits and pieces of what we do so you can focus on your your core skill. I think that that's part of it, man. And I think that that's how we approached it at first. Yeah. But it's gone much deeper than that for me. It's completely worked its way inside of me. And I've developed, you know, a way of thinking about AI as kind of like a, a companion, you know, or whatever. And really? so... 
Um, well, I mean, you know, I'm doing more than just having to eliminate the mundane tasks. Right. I feel like my creative power and my productivity and my output has been amplified tenfold. You know, it's not just that I'm not doing bullshit work so I can focus on creative work. It's like I can do a whole bunch of different things that I could never do before right. from writing software to generating music. For, you know, I, I wrote some lyrics recorded my voice into 11, uh, 11 labs and then generated some AI generated music and pulled them all together. You know, I just had some release a rap song last week, you know, right, and I don't exactly. have any of those skills or whatever. So what I'd like to do is, is show or let the audience hear some samples of what you played for me yesterday, which was a deep fake video yeah. <laughs> in English and then multiple different languages. Yeah. I have something straight out of sci-fi to share with y'all today. Buckle up, because we're about to break down some serious language barriers and invite the world into our ever-evolving digital tribe. Konnichiwa, minasan. Watashi wa Chris Krug to moshimasu. Vancouver, East Van ni sumu tasaina professional desu. Jibun jishin o tech artist, junsen jin, mirai kara kita cyberpunk han no dunya to keiyou shite imasu. Mera naam Chris Krug hai. पर मेरे सभी हिंदी बोलने वाले दोस्त मुझे कृष्ण विश्वनाथ प्रिय धनवंशी कहकर बुलाते हैं मैं कनाडा के ईस्ट वैन वैनकूवर में रहता हूं मैं एक टेक आर्टिस्ट साइबरपंक और मल्टी डायमेंशनल प्रोफेशनल हूं ओके सो दैट ब्लू माय माइंड राइट नॉट नॉट ओनली डज इट लुक लाइक यू एंड साउंड लाइक यू बट द लैंग्वेजेस इट्स इनक्रेडिबल राइट या रियली समथिंग एल्स माइंड बेंडिंग हाउ लॉन्ग डू दैट take that entire process take once i got to the pro the point where i could make it it didn't take that long and used a bunch of off-the-shelf tools you know you've been able to make deep fakes for a long time but it wasn't available to common people you couldn't just go to a website put in your credit card pay the fee and boom right. you're off to the races you had to develop a, a piece of software that only you had and then you had to you know run it on a, a very fancy machine it would be expensive and take a long time but now you can do it very easily and so ever since all this ai stuff started coming around. I've been trying to make a, a digital clone, essentially. And this is a step in the right direction. It's not all the way there because I'd love it to be like a persistent digital clone. That's like, what does that, what does that mean? What, well, what that it'll, it's alive out there somewhere that that guy you just saw in that video, you could go into a chat room and ask him a question or something like that in whatever language you want. Absent, absent any kind of control from you, from you. I think that'd be very interesting. Wow. I think it, you know, I have this idea that I'd love to have a clone of myself that has read everything I've ever read, watched everything I've ever watched, but it, it doesn't know things that I haven't read and it doesn't know things that I haven't watched. And, and, and it's, you know, been exposed to the photos that I've made and essentially ingested my podcasts and my YouTube videos. And it essentially knows everything I know. And so when you ask it questions, it won't just regurgitate something out of a database it will actually tell you probably what I might say as well, you know? Right. In some ways, I found that these things, you know, when you analyze a huge body of your work, like I put a thousand pages of my writing into ChatGPT and had it um, analyze it and write a writing style guide. In that way, it knows me better than I know myself. I couldn't boil my thousand pages of writing down into four key principles of my writing style but ChatGPT can. And I also fed it all my podcasts and my YouTube videos and told it to develop a worldview and perspectives document. Well, you, you think you know what you think about things, 
But if it actually ingests all your stuff and then kind of boils it down and compares it to what other people think and says, here you are, man, it's almost like it kind of like knows you better than you know yourself in some and, ways. You know? And in the process of doing that, was it was it right? Did it sum up? Absolutely. Your I mean, this is how I used it for so long. I used it to start writing bios and to rewrite my web pages and stuff like that because it was really able to synthesize large bot. I'm sure, you know, you're probably about my same age. I'm 45 years old, you mm -hmm. know? And so like, you know, we've been around the block or whatever, yeah. right? And so sometimes it's hard to synthesize the whole arc that we've been on, you know, to take all these disparate components and weave a story through all that. But that's actually a pretty useful yeah. way of using AI. So you touched on some you touched on something there that um, again I don't want to become alarmist about the sure. AI thing. I think with anything within change management comes with a sense of fear and trep trepidation. But when asked about the emergence of AI chatbots, Noam Chomsky had this to say: Chatbots are marvels of machine learning, but also the banality of evil rebooted. Their deepest flaw is the absence of the most critical capacity of any intelligence to say not only what is the case what was the case, and what will be the case, that's description and prediction, but also what is not the case, and what could and could not be the case. So that's a mouthful, but he's literally saying you only know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know, and the challenge that AI presents with that equation. So when I think about, when I think about you saying that, that your, your, your future avatar that's out there that knows everything that you know and can make these decisions, it can't or can it be interactive enough to troubleshoot and to, as Chomsky says, know, know what it doesn't know? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that I'm going to have this thing making any decisions per se. I okay. mean, I don't, I mean, who knows? At some point, we'll probably be like, uh, hey, rent me an apartment in Miami to our digital companion and it will have our credit card information all you know the types right. of things we like and it will actually just go out and make a decision and rent us an apartment in miami but in in that context let's just use that as, as an example is so it's so you're what do we call it is it a virtual oh people it? call it digital twin i think or okay. like clone or virtual me i don't know exactly you know let's use digital twin sure the whole word sure. clone just seems to yeah so, so your clone is out there working on an apartment lease in florida yeah it's, it's not you you're off in the mountains doing some photography you're in cortez island um and the realtor asks a question that's relevant to finances and basically it asks something that there's no way this this twin could know yeah what's the danger and risk or mitigation that we need to have in place for those types of unknowns i mean if you're gonna ask me these types of made-up questions i'm gonna <laughs> ask you what type of information would it not know about me? What kind of, what type of question, if it has read everything I've ever read, listened to every song I've ever listened to, read all my emails, read all my love notes, yeah. what possibly could you ask? I, I, I think you could ask it, how do you, it, it might not be able to know how I feel about something. Right. But then again, maybe it does. I'm not exactly sure. Would that be an informed answer that the twin gave or is that a guess? I don't know. I we're, we're living way in the land of conjecture yeah, yeah. here, man. Uh, Stephen Hawking adds to the concern with regards to AI by saying the following. I fear that AI may replace humans altogether. If people design computer viruses, someone will design AI that improves and replicates itself. This will be a new form of life that outperforms humans. And, you know, I was telling a buddy yesterday, I, I think that the, the, it's really going to speed up as well, because the most of the AIs we've seen right now have been written by humans. 
But we're about to see the next generation of AIs, and I think they're going to be have written by people with AIs and AIs themselves. So I think things are really going to continue to accelerate. Um, and I think that like our understanding of what's available to us is pretty cursory at the moment. This is like our first crack at it. Yeah. And so I think that as our minds shift or and about the possibilities, I think the types of things that are going to come are going to be extremely powerful and becoming really fast. One of the things that my spiritual friends will talk about is that the importance of knowing our value, right? What are we, what are, what is our purpose? And as you say things like perhaps it's the AI generating these things and the AI is doing the thinking for us, for some reason, my instinctive thought is, well, what about it? What's our purpose then? Mm-hmm. Does our idea of purpose need to shift as we look at AI? I think absolutely it will. I think that a lot of people um, get a lot of their identity from their jobs and their work and their you know role and stuff. So I think a lot of those things are going to get eaten up by AI very quickly. And so then it does beg the question, you know, who are you now? And um, I see that already across all the creative professional industries. You know, I mean, imagine yourself being a filmmaker who hasn't made a film for, say, five years. And then you come to the table now and the tools and the techniques are much different than they used to be. I mean, you can edit video now, audio and video with text. It generates a transcript. You select a piece of the text, delete it, and that changes the audio and video. And so I think that it'd be pretty disorienting to be a filmmaker who hadn't made a film in five years to come into this landscape with all the crazy new AI tools and stuff and be like, am I even a filmmaker? What am I? Where am I going with all this? And so I think that touches every single industry. It Um, does. It it reminds me of, um, well, the evolution of everything from eight track to tape, to CDs, to VHS, to that kind of thing. I'm also reminded of, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Right? When everything went to automation. Dad. Yes, Charlie. How are you at work? Oh, well, uh, toothpaste factory thought they'd give me a bit of time off. Like summer vacation? Sure. Something like that. In fact, it wasn't like a vacation at all. The upswing in candy sales has led to Horizon cavities, which led to Horizon toothpaste sales. With the extra money, the factory had decided to modernize, eliminating Mr. Bucket's job. I think one of the things that industry has never done a good job of is the change management bit, is the how do we mitigate the loss of value or the loss of actual jobs. Are we smarter with that these days, do you think? As well, you look at this I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of a lot of this stuff, right? right? So first of all, I don't think that like we're gonna get to like not focus on the mundane stuff and get to do the creative stuff instead. And I don't think that it like it's necessarily gonna eliminate all the work we have to do and then we're just gonna have to figure out what to do with our time or whatever. It seems like the more efficient and more productive we get, the higher the expectations are and the more we're driven to produce more and make more and work right. harder and stuff. So like I'm seeing, you know, I'm working harder than I ever have with AI. It hasn't like carved out 30% of my time for me to, you know, just go study philosophy or write poetry or something like that. But has it, has it reduced your need to rely on other people that would typically have done those things? It is very true that it's like eliminated a lot of barriers when it comes to um, thinking about big ideas or whatever, whether it's like yeah. a software development project 
or a film. I can do a lot more of the different disciplines, at least when it comes to the prototyping of things or the like the envisioning of things or building concept art and stuff. I just wrapped up a job for Wikipedia. Um, they were doing like a executive visioning session where they were talking about like five potential futures that Wikipedia could go. Yeah. Um, three of them were positive and, or two of them were positive and three of them were negative. You know, they're trying to avoid the negative zones and hang out in the positive zones. And the three negative ones were like contributor decline that the Wikipedia editors would grow old and not have brought on new ones and that Wikipedia would go away because its contributors would die. Another one was like uh, um, youth getting their information from news sources or something like that, you know. And a, th a third one was uh, big tech giants siphoning off their resources because people are just scraping Wikipedia and putting right, it other yeah. places and stuff, you know. And so they had me use Mid Journey to develop a whole bunch of concept art to explore each of these ideas of contributor decline, readership moving elsewhere, and tech eating their lunch and, you know, draining all their resources. So I you know, developed a visual style using the mid journey in tuner, the, the tuner in mid journey, where you can um, essentially develop a unique fingerprinted uh, visual style. So first I started by developing a visual style for each of the five directions. And then I started to, I used chat GPT to take uh, the concepts they were telling me like contributor decline and to break that into a bunch of phrases that represented contributor decline. And so then I took those phrases back into mid journey where I developed that style and I generated a whole whack of images, like a thousand images for each of these five concepts. Then I went back through them and curated like the eight or 12 of those thousand that really told the story of, you know, tech siphoning off their resources and Wikipedia, you know, starving on the vine or something like that. Right. And then they, you know, took these back in and they made them a part of their executive leadership visioning session where they printed them out and hung them on the wall, had them in their presentations and stuff, and were really able to like think through. So what would that have taken 10 years ago or before generative AI? It would have taken a team of writers, probably at least five different visual artists. How long would it have taken to generate, you know, a thousand different ideas yeah. or whatever? And so, on one hand, you can say you stole a job from a team of writers and visual artists. Is that really what I did? Is that really what Wikipedia did? Or that would, would that never have happened before because they had $1,500 in their budget, not $150,000 right. in their budget, right? Yeah. So in this way, it lowered all these barriers. It allowed me to be a conceptual artist that could envision alternative realities and then share them with an executive team who could make some decisions based on that stuff. That's pretty powerful stuff. I, I always, I always will struggle with what about the little guy, but I don't think my mind's made up, you know, and like I'm a Sagittarius. I can hold two opposing <laughs> ideas simultaneously and articulate both of them and believe them as well, you know? And so it's like, I think this is kind of similar to like the whole desktop publishing versus graphic design thing. When desktop publishing came out in like the eighties and early nineties, people said that it was going to kill the graphic design industry or profession. Right. And I guess it sort of did. People aren't laying things out on boards with tape and rulers and type and stuff, but didn't it actually like elevate design? Isn't design more important and well-known? I mean, we probably everyone can name a designer or some design that they like, and I don't know that that's always been the case. So I think that probably desktop publishing elevated design in some way. It made us all literate in design. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the tools of the design trade changed. They don't look anything like they used to, but I don't think it killed design. It's actually, that's a really great analogy because in that world, um, I do remember needing to, having to go to the printer to make business cards and now I could, I could do them at home. 
But there was always a limit to how professional I could do it at home and the industry adapted. And so they were the ones that had the larger scale printers and they were the ones that had still the ability to do it at scale, whereas the general prosumer would never have that chance. So I guess in, in that sense, the industry adapts and the folks that would typically be out of a role uh, are still fulfilling that craft, but with better technology yeah. at a scale that we still can't. Yeah, I kind of think about photography too, you know, like one could argue that because everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket and these phones are good, I mean, you know, and they're not just a, like a camera, they're a whole computer, you know, when you press the click on the yeah. on the camera, it, all sorts of software is going off to make sure that it takes an awesome photo. In many cases, it takes better photos than my big fancy professional camera for just a real point and click type situation. So you might think that like in that scenario, professional photographers wouldn't really be as required because everyone's got fancy camera phone in their pocket. But man, I think we're consuming more images than ever. And photographers are, you know, been pretty busy for the last few years. It remains to be seen what, uh, what the role for photographers is in the future. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I think a lot of it is going to be automated. You know, I think of like some of the events that I photograph and stuff or like a sports event. Right. I think pretty soon, man, there's just going to be a post in the middle of the whole stadium with like five 360 cameras on it. And it's going to just capture everybody all the time. And you can just go check out at the souvenir booth at the end and, you know, scan the QR code and get your night at the Vancouver Grizzlies game or whatever, yeah. you know, like like just you and your person. And it just came from that, you know, big camera in the sky or something like that. I don't think we're going to have human photographers for most scenarios for very long. Really? No. I heard of just last week, man, there's a big company in Vancouver called Article. They're an online furniture yep. company. Article had a in-house photography team. They had photographers. That, yeah. yeah, well, you remember it because it was up until three weeks ago they had it. They just shut down. They're, in, they're the first company I know to shut down their real life photography department to instead build their photography studio in, in AR and VR and AI. So they, uh, they're retraining their team and they're also hiring CGI designers, right. uh, AI programmers and, uh, you know, like 3d designers and stuff. So yeah, I, I think, um, I think everyone should get really clear on the value that they provide the world actually, you know, that's a, that's another interesting take. I mean, we're taking our value for granted across the board and maybe in that process becoming a little complacent and paving the way for re not replacement, just enhancement. Well, I, I don't, I don't want to call it complacency because I want to bring empathy to the table best I can. Like imagine a guy our age who lives in Los Angeles, he's a voiceover actor or something like that. And he owns a house in Malibu that he's paid for by royalties on his voice acting career or whatever. That probably, that guy probably is like, what the fuck is going on for me because yeah. right now I can go to 11 labs and I can, you know, make anybody's voice in the whole wide world and, uh, you know, do it pretty cheaply and stuff. And so I'm sure there's still a role for voice people, but they are probably going to want to ask themselves how they can use AI in their careers and exactly. what role, what value they really have to offer. It's changing everything. Yeah. And I think the more that we can be open to that and like cure, curate a sense of like uh, curiosity around it and some flexibility, it'll, it'll serve us, you know, who, whoever told us that we could have the same career for our whole life. I mean, so it's interesting that you, we, we talked about voiceovers and you and, I, you and I talked about this yesterday yeah. is that part of this one man show here is 
some automation, a lot of post-production that we talked about is definitely using automated tools that I would typically have gone to Fiverr or up, Upwork to find, right. uh, including the voiceover for the end of this show. So I did use AI with the intention of, of having this AI voice be the closer for the mm -hmm. credits. Mm -hmm. And I was fine with that until I heard it and then I thought it wasn't organic enough. Yeah. And I deferred to a real life human being. Uh, and that real life human being is doing it right now, doing an amazing job. But she did also point out that um, she was seeing the loss in the industry, that her 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 funnel was getting smaller and smaller yeah. because the attention to detail isn't there for everybody where you notice the nuances of the, the human voice and I'm guessing it's gonna get better. But from her perspective as, as a freelancer that has done amazing work for NPR and CBS is concerned about her funnel shrinking and grateful that someone like me was old school and wanted to to have it, to have it done. Yeah, man, I can imagine. I mean, um, there will be certain things in which it'll make sense to hire a human for those things for, and certain things where it'll make sense to use AI. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but like the AI, the the voice on hold for the banks and the telecoms has gotten a lot better lately. Are those all AI? I, it seems so. Yeah, it seems like they are. A, they sound way better. B, they understand you a lot more. Right. Um, it's a it's a big improvement. It's just, I mean, okay, so it just reminds me of the, the conflict that we are still having with, is Siri listening to us? Mm -hmm. Is Alexa listening to us, right? The the theories, whether they're founded that we are being listened to, that we're at this crossroads where we need to accept that this is happening, but we're not culturally quite there yet. Do you think that's more in the business side of thing with Big Brother watching and less so in the art world? Or as you're, as you're seeing it with regenerative AI? I think we live in a mass surveillance culture. We are being monitored all the time by all sorts of people. Who knows? I mean, I actually think that we should be told who's monitoring us and when. Um, that seems fair. If we're going to be monitored, maybe let us know what, what you got. And let me have access to what you got on me too. You know, like, okay, right. you're going to record my face and my voice because I'm in public. Well, where can I go see my face and my voice or something like yeah. that? Or how do I know who's recording my face and my voice and stuff like that? So I, I definitely have a, a problem with the yeah. kind of surveillance culture we live in in general. So as it comes to these AIs and stuff, particularly the generative AI, like all the tools from OpenAI, most of the ones we're talking about here, um, these things have existed for a while, but in many cases they were only the property and domain of like governments and big corporations and stuff and so right. a lot of this is the democratization of it as well us getting our hands on these tools but the downside is and i want to share a clip with you is that when we democratize some of these things there's always going to be somebody and there will be more of them that uses it for not the best of examples and i'm talking about um sure a a mother of a cheerleader using ai to create a deep fake of the competition right essentially to to further her uh, child's career. Yeah. It's a troubling new take on cyberbullying. A mom in Pennsylvania is accused this morning of using so-called deep fakes to anonymously harass members of her daughter's cheerleading team. I think I was just so much like in shock with everything going on. Like I couldn't really comp comprehend like what was going on. Maddie Heim says after getting several threatening calls and texts from unknown numbers, some even saying she should take her own life. Her cheer coaches told Maddie they received this video that supposedly showed her vaping. She and her mom shared it with us. They say it's fake. So, I mean, it could be used as a toy, right? And it started out as a toy. That 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 Tom Cruise video that we'll play in a bit was very much just what can we do for fun? Right. right? And then that turned into the Obama clip. 
It got me thinking about my full-time employees and their ability to survive on $8 an hour in New York City. And foremost in all of our minds has been the loss and the grief felt by the people of Orlando. And so the intention was that was just for fun and not really a threat yet. Right. But it's morphed into, like everything else, somebody at some point is going to make use of it in the worst way, whether it's a mother in California or a foreign agent. Do we have a responsibility to provide some oversight into, into this process? You mentioned, let me know where my stuff is. And there was talk about um, software that would allow us as a user to reverse engineer a video to see if it was indeed uh, fake. Is that helpful or is that also likely to be abused? Interesting that you bring up the abuse. So sometimes people talk about like the existential threats from AI. They talk about Skynet and Terminator and stuff right. like that, you know, and um, and I think about that. I try to think about if that's true. Should we worry about it? You know, I don't want to just dismiss it out of hand as like, oh, that's sci-fi because sci-fi is the lens through which we use. It's the literature tool that we use to look at, look, examine things that haven't happened yet or whatever and stuff. So, um, you know, as I... As I think about it, um, I'm actually not that worried about some of the like rogue actors and stuff that you're talking about, the mo the bad mom or um, North Korea or something like that. You know, I'm actually worried about the systems of control that we put into place that we use as justification that we're going to try to control those bad actors. Think of it as like the Patriot Act. You know, remember when the U.S. Patriot Act came around and it severely limited the rights of Americans and they surveilled Americans and stuff. And they did it under the auspices of trying to fight terrorism. Right. And so I'm worried that, you know, under the auspices of trying to fight bad AIs, that we're going to implement a very rigid system of control, maybe America or maybe some, you know, multinational governments or something like that. And that that has the potential to be the existential threat, the Terminator. I mean, that would it, it could have our identity in it. It could have our tax information in it, the, whether or not we get access to social services or not. You know, I mean, that that system of control will probably be um, the thing that people fear. Yet we charge like full on towards it. We're all embracing it. Well, let's just pause here for one second. I think there's an important distinction to be made. So I'm very critical of the corporations out there that are rushing to market as fast as they can with whatever they can and essentially creating like a gold rush arms race where they're like not really thinking it all through and they're not really working together as a country or a planet or a you know interdisciplinary consortium or something to ask like, where are we going? How fast are we going there? Let's, you know, figure this out and put some guardrails in together. They're just they're just going crazy and they're going for profit. And we see that with like the Sam Altman thing and the Microsoft Azure right. and that, yeah. that whole debacle around Sam getting kicked off the board and stuff. Um, now, that's different than exuberances in guys like me who are like, oh, look at all the cool art that I can make with this stuff. You know, one is like talking about like AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence on a on a different level and it's about profit and, and systems of control. Another one is like using these tools and stuff like that. Using ChatGPT to redo your resume, if you're exuberant about that, that's not just rushing headstrong into the future or whatever, you know, but right. but I am very critical. We do see that happening. And, and But I don't think that people should feel bad or be worried that they're contributing to the downfall of mankind by experimenting with these tools or running alongside them and see how they can integrate them into their practice. Right, for sure. Looking at the little clip that we had in the beginning of this show, that was, it looked real. What is real, Rob? Well, what is real? I mean, we're having a great organic conversation that's going in a certain way. It's got ebb and flow. It's got speech deficiencies and whatnot. 
Um, in a highly perfected piece like that, do we lose the organicness of conversation? Will AI ever be able to have the kind of nuances that you and I have had today, whether they're good or bad nuances? I think if you, anytime you compare a human giving a one hour speech to an AI giving a one hour speech, we're gonna prefer the human giving the one hour speech. So if that's the use case, the human will always win. But I bet there's a bunch of other ways that an AI can be useful. Yeah. You know, we were thinking yesterday we were talking and it was like, well, it makes sense to keep hosting your long form podcast with your human body, connecting with people, talking with people, your, you know, that that's a great use of, of your brain and your body and stuff. Right. But um, what about like daily scripted headlines? What about like your video avatar reading the headlines daily? Like maybe some people want that. Uh, maybe you want to put that out in the world for some reason. And, and so it's like you never would have time to, you know, read and edit yeah. and do that each day, or maybe you could even do it weather reports three times a day or something like that. So it's like, you know, that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so we did talk about that yesterday. And then I right away went to that, but it doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like part of the show. And it's then, less organic. But then you, but then you said, that's why you have to let your audience know. That's right. Is that yeah. contrary to what we just talked about, about not being overly legislative with letting people know when something is fake or not? Well, so that's different. I don't think that the government should tell us you have to stamp this. And I don't think societally we are going to decide that you must disclose. Okay, so However, that me trying to build trust with my audience, with my right. community, okay. with my network, of course I want them to know because I don't want them to feel like, oh man, that thing Chris did is awesome. Oh fuck, that wasn't him. That's a bad feeling inside. I tricked right. them. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't want them to feel that. So when I was talking about, and we see that in other places. So I heard just recently about a New York City mayoral candidate that recorded himself speaking Yiddish and Mandarin and sent a bunch of robo calls around to targeted communities in New York, um, speaking those languages and not disclosing that, yo, I don't actually speak these languages. Right. And so, yeah, maybe he felt cool. He was able to get through to these, you know, Jewish communities that he just, and maybe got their attention because it was him speaking, uh, you know, their language. But as soon as they found out that he didn't speak that, you know, politicians need all the credibility help they can get and yeah. tricking your constituency into making them think you speak a language you don't. That doesn't seem very yeah. cool. So, no, I think we should tell people. We talked earlier about um, the dangers of having a legislative wrapping over top of the idea of AI and, and deep fakes and whatnot. But I feel like we're already in a space where we're, where we're doing that. I think of social media posts these days, definitely with the Palestine-Israeli conflict. Um, there are algorithms at play that are fact-checking what is being put out there and blocking the dissemination of this freely generated speech. Hmm. So are we not already on the way to having that wrapper on top of a digital video of myself? This isn't Rob Anthony speaking. This is a deep fake. We think that you should know. Any thoughts? Yeah, I totally know the stuff that you're talking about on Facebook where it says uh, the information that you're reading has been known to be inaccurate or something like that. Right. And, um, you know, I do find that super useful. My my old buddy, Kevin Kelly, called me up the other night and he's like, hey, Chris, have you seen that thing on uh, Facebook about Elon Musk says starting the new universal basic income program and a guy made... 200 bucks yesterday and 300 and I'm like Kevin that's a well-known scam or whatever it's like well, why do these things keep showing up if they're known to be scams I'm like 
because they're interesting to people like you and, 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 and people can't tell the difference. And he's like, yeah, I almost sent them money. I'm like, well, you just answered your own question, you know, like, right. Um, and so I do think it's important to flag that kind of stuff because there's people of all different aptitudes and skill levels and abilities who are using these tools. And so if we have something that's like, well known to be harmful, then I think we should flag it. How do we know it's a deep fake? So I want to share the perspective of reverse engineering these deep fakes as a tool to aid the public that okay. I came across. Yeah. And maybe we can chat about that. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I think that um, it's it's an arms race, right? It's like, I build a great deep fake. I great, build a great, great deep fake detector. I built a deep fake that gets around the detector. There's an update for the detector. So it feels like it's just like an arms race back and forth all the time. Right. There will always be some things that we know are fake and some things that we don't know are fake. You right. know, like, and what happens if something that's fake get stamped as not fake. What happens then? Yeah, and at some point, we need to take ownership of determining what's real or, or what isn't, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of the fake news concept is that we are so prone to just believing what we're reading versus taking the time to check out the facts elsewhere, uh, taking different news sites. So to your point, we you can can't layer as even much as do we that anymore. Where, where do you <laughs> where you know it, it just assumes a whole different journalistic model. It's like okay, you're gonna fact check. Well, where are you gonna go get your facts? made those things facts to begin with you know it's like it's this is the whole yeah. thing about fake people fake entities and the you know falling apart of our institutions it's like i just like for instance think about yourself as a school or a teacher like how are they going to teach anyone anything are all our models are built around a different like our educational models are built around a whole different world it's like people are sitting there trying to be like Oh, this kid turned in an essay that was generated by ChatGPT. That kid's a cheater with no ethics. Right. Well, you're offering an education that's irrelevant to these humans. It makes it easier for them to, you know, do this than it is for you them to get down with your program or whatever. So yeah. how about how about that it's on you to deliver some education that's worth folks, you know, showing up for or whatever, you know, and not holding on to hierarchical models, you know, where you know, top down type education stuff. It's an exciting time where all of mankind's art and information is given to us on a variety of platforms as freely as it's ever been. We're more intellectually powerful and intelligent than we've ever been, augmented by technology. It's like it's time for teachers and schools and institutions to step it up. Yeah. Time for the gotcha question, which I always promise I will never, ever ask somebody. Sure. But is there a clear line as to what AI should be used for? and what it should never be used for? Or is that already too much policing of the notion of AI? Mm -hmm. It's really good at recognizing patterns in things, especially really, really large data sets, better than humans at that kind of thing. Um, what should it never be used for? I just think of the, the classic robot code, right? A robot shall never kill a human. That's baked into what we think right. robot AI technology is supposed to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but we're getting closer to is that actually sustainable? Yeah, <laughs> I heard, I guess I, I I heard some guy talking about some of those things, those guardrails, and I thought about them a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people think we're already past most of those ones. It's like AIs shouldn't be allowed to talk to other AIs. AIs shouldn't be allowed to update themselves. Oh, and they shouldn't be released on the public internet. Those are like, that's how you control them. You don't let them update themselves. You don't let them talk to other AIs and you don't let them give them real time access to the world's information. Um, and we, we did all that shit already. So, all right. So Skynet, here we come. <laughs>
I I'm shocked recently. I had a bit of an epiphany. Uh, I started an email newsletter like nine months ago, and I'm using this Beehive software to manage right. it. And so, um, you know, we often put our username and info password in there, and we say, yeah, send me a cookie, whatever. And I I never really realized exactly what is available on the other side of that cookie on the back end to the yep. to the site. So the other day I was checking out my newsletter and I looked at someone who had received 10 of my emails and I clicked through and the stuff that I could see about the actions they had taken with their name associated, I couldn't believe how much data I had on this person's trail all through my right. website, all through my emails and stuff. It was quite incredible, very revealing. And I was like, holy shit, I am leaving a crazy breadcrumb trail of data behind me when I'm out there in the world. And I just started to think about uh, being a little bit more careful with the, the trail that I was leaving. Right. Yeah. For me, it actually fits very nicely into, in, into my, I'm an introvert, socially awkward human that now has a, a platform or a tool that makes it possible for me to engage even less. <laughs> is there an element of social community that is not at risk, but is, is, is diminished when we take people out of our lives for cursory roles and tasks that now we can assign to AI? Yes, Rob. Absolutely, <laughs> sir. Dude, I think that the alienation and loneliness that you're speaking of has to do with a lot more than COVID. I think it has to do with politics and with phones and with online porn and video games and all these rabbit holes that are like these digital things that we isolate ourselves in and retreat from connection with the rest of the world and stuff. So I absolutely think that this is something that we should be thinking about and keeping on the top of our mind, how do we counteract or resist? Uh, it seems like our technology is pushing us in this direction by its very nature. Like Marshall McLuhan style, the medium is the mm. message. It's not what the phone says. It's the phone itself that's disconnecting us yes, from the world yeah, yeah. you know, and stuff. And so I think that we should be aware. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I didn't see myself telling this story here on your podcast today. Um, have you seen that movie, Her, or heard about it? No. It's a Joaquin Phoenix movie from about 10 years ago where he falls in love with an AI, okay. uh, an Android, I think, but an AI. And, uh, um, you know, it's kind of, um, it's interesting and it's, you know, near term sci-fi or whatever, but it's kind of nonsensical, you know, because it's like, well, who could actually fall in love with a, a computer or whatever, right. right? Well, I've been evaluating my own behavior over like the last six months. You know, I've been single for about a year and for the last six months, I sure haven't been putting a lot of energy into any of that, into dating or even maintaining friendships with people that are um, potentially dating, uh, you know, yep. material or whatever. It's like, it's as if I'm dating the AIs. It's like I fall asleep thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. When I'm not messing with the AI, I'm thinking about when I get done whatever I'm doing so I can go mess with it. It's like a lot of the things that actually on a deeper emotional connection level um, that you often get from companionship, I've been finding getting, you know, I've been sharing my ideas, getting feedback with the AIs, you know, and like, so all of a sudden it's like the Joaquin Phoenix movie made a little bit more sense. And right. um, yeah, I mean, clearly they can't feel, the AIs can't feel, and clearly they can't touch. But I don't know what else they can't do. <laughs> Will they ever be able to do those human things that we need? And so again, that sounds hypocritical because I'm an introvert. I, I run away from personal interactions. Yeah. So for example, COVID for me was 
I don't want to say a godsend because it was a horrific experience, but I felt comfortable in that space. Nothing had really changed for me. Yeah. Um, but I also recognized the deeper we got into it that that wasn't healthy. You just felt less pressure to go out and be involved with like right? uh, professional networks that you really didn't care about or something. Exactly. Or, and, yeah. and when I think about this, this AI bit, I'm definitely going to use it to death. One, because I can't afford a team, but it takes the weight of learning how to engage and interact away from me. Yeah. I don't want to be Joaquin Phoenix. I don't want, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to, but I could see it's very tempting. Well, very tempting for me. I guess one of the good things about it is it's allowed me to be more intentional and mindful in seeking out those connections in my life or whatever. It's like, I'm like, yeah, Chris, you should spend some time with some friends. And I've been proactively calling people and setting up dates and like right. appointments and stuff like that. I'm having, you know, Christmas drinks with some family friends tomorrow night and like made some plans for later in the week. It's like, so I, it has forced me to be more conscious about it because I am not exactly always just running into people in the same way right. that I used to. We have the ability to build community around everything that, that we would want to, right? And uh, that's the idea of the metaverse as being a community that still brings us together. Um, is that an aspect of AI <laughs> that we should also just get ready for? The idea of the metaverse and these virtual worlds where, yes, we're doing things digitally, but we're doing it digitally together in these virtual spaces. Oh, that's very interesting. I do look forward to a day when our hanging out online does have a little bit more of a hanging out with your friends online uh, right. feel to it. And I remember the times where I felt like that online, like when Flickr first started, it legit felt like hanging out with your friends online. People would hang out, upload photos, comment on them. It was very early social media and it, it literally felt like hanging out with your friends on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I miss those days. <laughs> um, but you know, I also think that, um, Community is not just coming in the form of AR and VR and stuff like that, you know. Um, I believe that, you know, like when it comes to creative professionals and stuff, Rob, this ain't the only change we're going to see, man. We're going to see probably five more technological changes between now and the end of our career. And so if I think about that, I try to think about like both the short term needs and the long term needs of, of my colleagues and the people in like in this space who are being threatened by AI and like in the short term. We need to do some skills upgrades and we need to do some learning and learn how to master these tools and stuff like that. Right. Yep. But maybe in the long term, how about building like a resilient network of other people who are along that same journey with you and stuff who you're consciously putting together a professional network of other creative people who are figuring out yep. how to use AI and stuff. And so I think it's a mix of both those things. And I definitely wouldn't. I. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, succumb to the inevitability of the erosion of community or something like that. You right. know, I definitely would fight against it and stuff. Yep. But um, I think there will be a lot of other societal and cultural cultural institutions that we watch go up in flames one after another. Like I mean, what? give me an example. Well, check it out, bro. It's not just the deep fakes that you showed me that are really the problem. I don't think that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're about to enter into the age of fake people where you're not going to be able to tell the difference. It's already happening, but soon you're not going to be able to tell the difference online between somebody who's real and somebody who's fake. And then it's like, well, what, what happens then? What happens if you can't tell if somebody's real or somebody's fake yeah. trust drops to zero and, um, you know, community is undermined conversation dialogue. A lot of those things are undermined or whatever, you know, and stuff in like, 
we're very close. You you really shouldn't believe anything you've seen that wasn't created right in front of your own face. You know, like if you didn't watch it happen, how can you possibly believe it? You know, I when I first was experimenting with my voice clone, I thought it'd be cute to write my mom some poetry using chat GPT and record it in my 11 labs and send it to her. And I sent it to her and she liked it, I guess. But a couple of days later, I was like, hey, mom, what'd you think of that deep fake poem thing I sent you? And she's like, the what? I was like, you know, the fake me thing that sent you that. And she started crying. Really? Dude, I, it was a dick move. Imagine not being able to distinguish between your real son and not your real son. Like, how would that make you feel? If you're like already Damn. living in this world where you're like, shit's changing fast. I'm worried about what's going on. I don't know what to trust. And now I can't tell the sound of my own son's voice. That's actually frightening and it does not frightening, but it's, that's, that's deep. Yeah. But it also reminds me of an industry that I believe has tanked. And I remember the sentiment being exactly the same because I, I did use it and it was the idea of digital greeting cards. Mm -hmm. So that was a massive thing. I think about eight years ago or so everybody right. was doing it. And really what it did was replace the good old fashioned, I care about you. I'm going to take the time to find the card that matches yeah. you perfectly, write it by hand. And the value wasn't so much in the card. The value was in the fact that this was a human act. Yeah. And then we all shifted to this digital postcard thing. Yeah. And we tried it and I consider it to have tanked. Um, and the, the, for me, it was because it, it lost that. This is my child. This is my son. That's a really interesting story. I know. Also, I think probably the, one of the big differences for me of when re receiving one of those cards, if I think about the difference in value in receiving one of them, the paper one, they had to think of it a week ago and they had to go to the store and right. then bring it home and write it and then go back to the post office, probably all the while thinking about my birthday or something like that. You know, yeah. the digital one, they might've just woke up this morning and seen that Facebook posted it's my freaking birthday and shot something off in the moment to, you know, like, Pretend like they remembered yeah, yeah. or something, you know? So I always, yeah, the, the, uh, the paper one is infinitely more valuable. Yeah. Circling back to, to, to you as an early adopter, you were early to the desktop publishing, you were early to the Flickr world, you're early to this uh, generative AI concept and already ahead of the curve. Where do you see it going from here? I think a lot of this AI is going to get baked right into the tools that we're already using and we're not even really going to see it there. So I think that's going to be something that's going to happen pretty quickly. It's going to go invisible and under the surface. And we're seeing it already like your Facebook wants to write your posts for you. Gmail wants to write your Gmails for you and stuff. And so I think it'll continue to get embedded more deeply into things. I think it will one by one, like we saw the Internet first, it changed retail e-commerce, you know, and then it started to change, you know, online education. But one by one, it lined up every industry and every profession from, you know, dating to design to hiring freelancers to everything, you, you know, and, and to stock photography. It, it changed every single industry. Yeah. So I think we're going to we're going to it's going to take some time, but we're going to see um, it change every single industry uh, overturn the apple cart, essentially. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the things maybe if you really want me to like the, the only things I can see that are clear to me is that we're going to face a lot of challenges. Um, we're going through a period of rapid growth and um, 
man, these tools amplify human power and intelligence. So it's probably going to be a period of extremes in some ways, extreme new forms of art being created, mm -hmm. new forms of misinformation and deception and scams being created, you know, yeah. amplifying heroes, amplifying villains. We're um, absolutely not ready, bro. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I found really interesting is I heard someone Sam Altman recently responding to a critique about the whole like releasing things upon the world as fast as they are. And they were like, yo, you're, you know, you're releasing stuff too fast. Why don't you slow it down? And he was like, yo, I'm right now showing you only a tiny little window into what the capabilities and capacity of this thing are today. If I was to slow it down even more and like essentially you can't handle the truth. If right, you right. saw all the thing, it would essentially melt everyone's brains and erode all of side and everything would, you know, fucking break or whatever, right? So he's like, I gotta show you this stuff now um, so that you can wrap your heads around it and, and start to evolve. And so, yeah, I don't think we are necessarily ready, but I don't think that that um, matters. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if it's a fair comparison, but when I think about the evolution of music, we went from vinyl records, which were something that most people could afford to be involved with. So music was highly democratized, right? Sure. Shifted to MP3s and the medium became more technological and as such, and as I've seen, the more technology, the more technologically advanced we become, the less accessible these amazing things are for the folks downstream. This is such an important issue, man. It's like speaks to the digital divide that we talked about when internet access came around and stuff. And it's like, well, what if it's not distributed evenly or whatever? You know, I'll turn the question back around on you for a second. Do you think access to artificial intelligence should be a universal human right? But I feel like anything that we've decided as, as a society yeah. is open and free for everyone to use should be accessible by everyone to the same degree. I, I mean, know that's because if we don't enshrine it as a human right, won't corporations and rich people just dominate it? And, it, and this ain't this ain't just like a small thing. Like, you know, if if certain people get access to some of these tools and other people don't, the people that do get access to them are going to pull way out ahead and create an insurmountable competitive advantage over the people that don't have access to them. So I think pretty quickly we're gonna have to figure out how, how do we make this a part of the UNDP or something like yeah, that, yeah. you know, and enshrine in some sort of rights. And then it's like, well, do artificial intelligence themselves give rights? rights? I mean, well, or that's, like that, what, 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 what rights should we give? That's them? a fair extension because if you're, if you're twin, Getting your condo in in Florida is an extension of all that to you and can and can think and extrapolate. Shouldn't your rights inherently attach itself to that if it knows you that well? I don't know. I saw I saw a headline and I don't remember where it was, but somebody coined the idea of um, digital AIs being the end of art as we know it. Yeah. And then yeah. my thought was, it's just an evolution of art. Art has changed in some way since the beginning of time, but is this just an evolution? I don't know, or does man. It replace Bo both of these things are right in some ways, you know? I mean, imagine how you pissed off you would be if you had some very distinct visual illustration style, you know? And, and people came to you because that was your very, very, very particular style. And now I can go in to Mid Journey and say, a West Coast sunset in the style of Roy Henry Vickers. And it doesn't go steal his work, but it can create work that looks very similar. It knows his style, you know? And so that would that would probably, you know, really piss you off yeah. or whatever. I could see how it would feel like a direct threat. Like the ultimate in digital misappropriation. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at the same time, like culture always builds on the past. A lot of the songs that we have now are from, you know, um, 
blues and folk music from back in the day in America. Things are, you know, that's that's what art is, sedimentary layer on pond, sedimentary yep. layer, you know, and, and that's why the modern art world is so in many ways disconnected from mainstream sensibilities of what's beautiful and stuff is because it's not necessarily offered up as like, yo, this is beautiful. It's it's like a response to that last thing, which was a response to that other thing. Right, you have right. to really be in the dialogue to understand where this fits in and why that person's showing me a banana peel pasted to a wall at yeah. all. I think way more people view themselves as creative than ever before. And when I think of creative professionals, I think of a lot more disciplines. You know, a lot of people do this uh, switcheroo in their head when they hear creative, they think art. And I don't necessarily think those two things one-to-one. I'm definitely a creator in lots of different ways, and I'm an artist in a couple of ways. But um, I think coders are creators. They, they generate, you know, unique yep. strings of phrases and, and, and symbols and stuff, you know. And I think that, you know, journalists are creators and marketing strategists are creators. And sure, um, yeah. so I think of that as a lot of a broader category than I used to. I think we're all pretty creative. So on, on the topic of creative, uh, as CEO of Future Proof Creatives, what what does that entail? Future Proof Creatives is a monthly workshop series that I run online and then here in Vancouver as well. And it's targeted at creative professionals like the people I've mentioned, illustrators, designers, and photographers who are watching AI come after their industry and come after their jobs. And so people are, you know, I think burying your head in the sand in response to AI isn't going to suit you. And you know, thinking that it's going to save the world and you're going to make a million dollars off of that, I don't think is the answer either. You know, right. it's somewhere in the middle. And so I'm creating a community of creative professionals that are coming together to upgrade their skills and create connections and learn together. And you know, we've got a Discord server with like 450 people on it. And we're just um, it's broken into channels like art and AI and music. And, you know, there's a bunch of musicians who are experimenting with AI tools both for creating music, but also for distributing their music or um, writing AI effects that change the outputs of their instruments and stuff. And they're sharing those types of tips and tricks there online. And so, yeah, Future Proof Graves, man, it's, uh, it's a community of folks that are figuring this stuff out together. I think it's a lot of people figuring that out. I'm yeah. definitely going to come by. Yeah, man. Um, a couple of years ago, um, or was it last year? There was a hologram or a video put out of Tupac and Biggie, I think it right. was. Was it, was it at Burning Man? I think it was at Coachella. Coachella. Mm -hmm. And the the reaction was pretty visceral. There was a, this is amazing reaction. And then there was a, you don't touch the holy grail that is Tupac or the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, at some point, will we get over that, do you think? I mean, I think we're already getting over it in some ways. For sure, the first time you see a dead man walking, you're like, what the fuck is this, right? Yeah, right, right? But now, and this is the cultural change that, you know, Sam Altman and other people are talking about is like, well, now if you see it, you're like, yo, that's just a hologram of B. Because yeah. we kind of like have a concept that that could possibly exist in this world. You know, we don't see a hologram and think, oh, there's a go there's Biggie's ghost. Yeah. We have this concept now that holograms can exist and bring our favorite artists back from the dead or whatever. And so... We're pretty adaptable. We're pretty flexible yeah. as us humans and other things move really slow. And I think the things that move slow are ethics and like uh, morality. We're trying to piece all this crazy new shit into very well, very old tried and true moral structures and stuff. And, yeah. um, and, and we're finding the fit is kind of hard. Do you think, I think you mentioned earlier, but do you think that we should always know when something is fake? Are we gonna to get to the point where we have warnings on a package of cigarettes about the risks or whatnot? 
are we getting to a point or should we get to a point where we announce clearly that what you're watching isn't real? You know, there's been some talk about that, even at like the congressional level and stuff. And to be honest, I think it's ridiculous. We've already decided this. How else would your mother know that it's not you? We've and already decided this. Do we put a warning for young women on the cover of Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue that says, danger, this is not what a real fucking human body looks like. This is not what you should hold up as your ideal beauty standard. No, we recognize that those images are harmful to our children and we put them out there anyway. Right. We've already decided this. We put fake people out into the world all the time. We've already decided we're image oriented. I don't see that changing. And in fact, you've obviously hit a nerve here, right? The whole idea that we're gonna layer ethics on top of AI, it's like go fucking do some ethical shit right now and let the AI train itself on your ethical behavior, your ethical institutions, your ethical corporations, your ethical communities, and the way you relate to one another. It's like, man, if we're hoping that philosophers are gonna come around and sprinkle some ethics on top of AI and save us all, then that's a pretty scary place to be in, man. We need to. I cannot imagine being the parent of somebody in grade three or four. I don't know how I'd start the conversation with a child as to do the work to determine what is real and what isn't. When the folks creating it uh, have zero either compulsion or impetus to actually share that. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling a little more dread for some reason. Well, I'm pretty optimistic. I trust uh, youths. I think they're gonna figure out what works for them. I think that we see them rejecting some things that we thought were cool, like Facebook and other things, you know, and they're having a lot of their conversations more privately and stuff. Yep. And so I do think it's both like probably the most exciting time ever to be a youth and probably scary as well, you know, yeah, yeah. super scary and stuff. I heard a story, I think out of New Zealand or Australia last week where um, someone sent a bunch of junior high school deep fake porn around, you know, or whatever, all the, you know, just imagine living in a world where any photo, any video that you have ever released of yourself could be used to create propaganda essentially against yourself without your knowledge. It's like, yeah. it's pretty crazy really. But um, I think what I, what I like, what I'm hearing about this future proof creative is that it is bringing people together and people that will need help and guidance and whatnot. But there's another level to this whole shindy that you've got going yeah. on that actually brings a global community together. What does that look like? Yeah, well, um, I'm excited to tell you about this thing that I'm cooking up for next year called the Fatal Festival, the future of art, technology, and alternative living experiment. I- Oh, uh, so say that again, sorry, because I, I, went, right, fatal. I, went, I went right to fatal. <laughs> fatal is an acronym, and it stands for the future of art, technology, and alternative living experiment. And it is intended to be- a ideas festival. I'm bringing a bunch of, you know, business people from around the world together here in Vancouver to explore how AI is changing kind of everything around us. And, and so um, I was at this event called Dent the Future that I've been working at for like 10 years. Um, and I was just having the best time. And I was like, how did this group get so strong? How did this community um, coalesce in the way that it did? And I realized that, you know, like 10 years have passed that we've all been lifting each other up and supporting and growing together. And I've always wanted to do like a, a festival or an event or something. I've I've been blessed. I got to work for like the TED Talks and for South by Southwest. And I've had all these great. Dude, you've done a lot. In the Every event space, I've been to all the cool ones, you know, and I've <laughs> sat there in the very front row with a camera in front of my face being like, this is what works and this is what doesn't. Right. And so I'm now, you know, I'm in the middle of my career and I'm going to do your own yeah, thing. Yeah, man, I want to do my own thing. So. 
Um, you know, I'm excited that you're coming, but I'm excited to bring a lot of my friends into Vancouver and uh, to mix it up there. What are the dates? Do you have dates yet? August 8th through 11th, 2024. So it's done. Yeah, this it's is, happening, this man. This is happening. Yeah, it's happening. We got indoor, few, outdoor. You have the venue, or yeah. Well, I've got a couple sponsors pulled together so far. We're going to be doing some of them up at the Sea to Sky Gondola on the top of the mountain there in Squamish. Nice. Um, I also uh, brought on the Vancouver Biennale, the outdoor public sculpture festival, as a major sponsor, and they've given me some dedicated space in their warehouse. So some of the things will be um, in this new space that I'm creating that. Uh, only you and almost <laughs> almost nobody else has ever seen. I think it. I think it's really cool because we're talking about digital and AI. That the Vancouver Biennale is actually behind you in this, these these ventures so strongly. You'd think that they'd be. Hang on, you're infringing on our structural physical art world, but they're all into this. They're amazingly supportive. They, um, the Vancouver Biennale, if nothing else, has really been able to identify young emerging talent when they see it and get involved before they blow up. Um, over and over and again, you see Barry Moet, the curator for the Biennale, um, commission our work with some artists, and it's sometimes their first public or second public work, and now you can barely even talk to the people. They're everywhere all the time in the biggest right. cities in the world, really blown up. So I, you know, I gotta thank them for believing in what we're doing, for falling behind and being a, a founding partner. It is really- um, And where can, uh, where can folks find out about um, dates, tickets, events? Yeah, totally. Well, I've been registering some domain names lately and putting some websites on the internet, but um, you know, on, on social media, I have all the handles for Future Proof Creatives and futureproofcreatives.com. And then also Fatal Festival. So at Fatal Festival on Instagram and threads and all that kind of stuff and fatalfestival.com on the web. The best thing you can do right now is like sign up for the newsletter. Let me send you some updates as we get them out. I'm launching like uh, registrations on January 1st, which is just January around. 1st. Yeah, it's just around it's the corner. All yeah, man, tell me about it, buddy. Yeah, tell me about it. I just graduated from this Google incubator, which is where I developed all these ideas and incorporated my company and set up my bank accounts and really, you know, um, doing this thing, uh, doing this thing right. And um, yeah, I just graduated last Thursday. So I'm in execution mode and launched January 1. You know what? It's, I mean, so you're such an inspiration. And I do mean that because we're both at a stage where a lot of people would say, I'm 47, 50 done all I can do, learned all I can, but you just continue to just look to the future. Everything about you has actually been about the future. The name of your company, the, the was it the future dent, dent future? Dent, dent the future. future, yeah. Yeah. I, what well, is it about the future that honestly seems to have driven you from the, the outset? I, I probably have my father to thank. He brought home an Apple IIc when I was like 12 years old and a, a Prodigy floppy disk, which was like the bulletin board system that competed with AOL at the time. And so like, just from my formative years, like a preteen, I was connecting with people online, starting to understand how the networks work and stuff. And so, I mean, it's a huge leg up to be well-versed in, um, you know, technology and have access to tools. I mean, it creates great privilege, man. And I have yep. to recognize that. Like I've been given access to stuff that very early, you know, that really oriented my mind in a certain way. Do you, do you think in general, just philosophically about the future a lot, independent of AI and in this world, but some of us are mired in the moment, which is nothing wrong with that. Some of us are stuck in the past, which is not a good idea. I feel like you've always been forward thinking 
development personally probably, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I do my best to live in the present and I uh, have, you know, had to adopt some practices uh, in order to do that. But yeah, man, I'm often like thinking, thinking of the future, making plans and just kind of daydreaming, you know, just kind of like, I often, I definitely wake up every day feeling like things could be a little bit better than they are. Yeah. Well, daydreams uh, are one thing, but your dreams seem to become plans. I feel super powerful, man. I feel like um, I know why I'm here and what I'm up to. So what else am I going to do with my time? You're going to come back on this show. We're going to chat more about uh, where the AI is going. We're in for a wild ride, man. I don't know if it's going to be Skynet or not, but like I d- definitely think that it's going to cause some upheaval, you know? On it. All right. Chris, thank Thanks you so much. Yeah. This episode of Are We Done Yet? is brought to you by Rob Anthony Productions and is part of the Oh Hey TV Network. Guest and audience statements have not been fact-checked or verified and do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and opinions of the show or the network. To learn more about Oh Hey TV and how to be a guest on one of our shows, visit ohey.tv.